As the senior vice president of product for Conga, Eric Karaskia knows two things. Number one, products can fundamentally change the workflow of any business. And number two, more times than not, customers will tell you what they need, even if they don't necessarily know how to describe it. We keep going back to this Apple example and the famous one related to the iPod. No one asked for your entire music catalog in a deck of cards. They asked for a bunch of other stuff, but Steve Jobs being able to come back and say, I understand the problem you're trying to solve. You don't want to lug all this stuff around and it's difficult to go through and do. And what about this? And having people go, oh, yes, it's what I need and didn't know what to ask for. That's the challenge faced by anyone in the business of product development to deliver revolutionary products and services without having to be asked to do so. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Eric details how his team goes about meeting that challenge by developing services with the customer experience at the forefront. Plus, he explains the importance of working hand-in-hand with your developers. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest, the SVP of product management from Conga, Eric Karaskia. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Albert. Great to be here. All right. I know what Conga is. I don't know if everyone else out there knows what Conga is, but if you could, please explain what is Conga. I'm not going to lie. By the way, the first time I told someone and recommended Conga to them, they told me that's not a real product. They said there's no way that's a real actual (laughs) Salesforce enterprise grade application to make things better. And I'm like, no, it is. It's called Conga. We used it. It was awesome. So (laughs) tell everyone what it is. Fantastic. So I would say on the Conga side of things, what we provide is a set of SaaS applications for commercial operations transformation. So kind of breaking that down, you can think of kind of three main uh, blocks of people within a company uh, that we add value for. The first piece is around the sales teams. So how do you go through and quote products to customers and how can they go through an order, whether it's through a direct sales rep or e-commerce, to something very sales-centric. Then there's another block that relates to more of a legal um, team um, as that quote or order then transitions into an agreement or a contract um, and a set of business processes around that. And then into the revenue component, which is around invoicing, billing, and incentives, and basically how you bring money uh, in the door. So uh, those three areas work together in tandem, and whether you call it quote to cash or commercial operations, our focus is applications that help companies get to sustained profitable growth. So that's basically the products that that, um, we go through and provide. And the way I I describe it to people is based upon I guess from the user and end user perspective, how painful it is to put together quotes. And people look at it and say, that's not a problem, right? If uh, you're a business, maybe the way you create a, let's say a proposal, 
is you have maybe a Microsoft PowerPoint template or you have a Google Docs template, Google Slides template. You have a couple customizations. You depend on individual sales reps. That's what we do at Mission because we don't have that many people to put it together. And you send each person or prospect their own customized proposal. When I was the VP of sales at Sysmos, our sales team was almost 100 people. And so that became not manageable. And so we used Conga to say, okay, if you could just map just a couple of the fields where we could say an account name, maybe a logo, maybe some products, and click create proposal, literally one button create and out spits a nice, beautifully laid out PowerPoint or doc that the customer can consume. That's what Conga actually does. Like, that's how I describe it to people. Like, all, all that time you spend managing people trying to mess around and fuss around with different shared docs. Throw that out the window, push a button and guarantee that your customer prospects, whoever gets a unified document that is aligned with your brand value props. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the things that we see around that, the broader space for uh, the um, commercial operations transformation is this concept of a maturity curve. So for some companies, like you're saying, the main problem that they're trying to solve within a sales organization is, hey, we're doing quotes on Excel. Can we please get something to the customer that doesn't look like a ransom note? with different fonts, different colors, and the rest of it. And that, that's our biggest problem. Can we get something that out digitized and consistent? There's other companies that go through and say, yeah, we got that nailed down. But you know what? It takes us forever to get it out the door because it's got to go through 15 people for approvals. It didn't hit Albert. And so you know, there was a discounting problem. So that's a problem they're solving. There's other ones that are like, look, we got that down. We got the document thing down, we got approvals down, we got our system of record down, we can do all that, but now we're trying to open up to you know, alternate channels and to partners and use all, uh, artificial intelligence. So really a lot of what Conga does is help people you know, understand what good is versus great and help them up that maturity curve, whether it's just spitting a document out or it's something much more sophisticated than that. So when sitting as the you know, SVP of product management, uh, from the different people we've talked to that have product responsibility, they all talk to customer, 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 customer. That's how guides the product. I'm assuming you're in the same boat since your product literally sits. I mean, it sits inside of people's like Salesforce or CRM instances. Yeah, it's probably 80% of what I spend time on is uh, you know customer or prospect uh, related. And from your perspective, when at what size does a company need does Conga start becoming appealing? Like because in my mind, it's always in a scaling organization that maybe is getting to the point where they're producing whatever documents they need. Maybe they're producing, they're producing, let's say they're spending more time producing and managing documents than they are talking to customers or delivering the services that the customer expects. That's when they start thinking, I need a solution. But in your eyes, from what you can tell, at what size does a company start getting to that level? You know, if you look on the front end of that maturity curve, and you mentioned kind of document as an entry point of solving a document-centric product, it could be, you know, two guys in a garage, <laughs> they need to get proposals out or some sort of um, uh, digitization of the, the document. So for the document-centric stuff, it's fairly early on. For people that are looking at having, you know, once you start adding on more than one product or service, you're starting to look at bundling things, you're starting to look at blended models of perpetual and subscription, you're looking at getting into different, opening up different channels, then you start looking at stuff that's a little bit more sophisticated and kind of going up that curve to, ah, you know, I might need a configure price quote solution, or I might need something for 
you know, not just contract authoring, uh, but how I do negotiation and redline and clause recommendation and, and different things. So um, that's one of the really cool things about Conga and Aptis coming together of the new Conga. I'd say historically, Conga was fantastic on those entry points to the maturity curve for document-centric components. And Aptis was great further up the maturity curve with more of the process automation kind of a step. So those two blended together can do magic in, in companies, whether they're just getting started out uh, on the kind of small and medium business front, or it's something where they're getting up the maturity curve more in the enterprise realm. Yeah, let's talk about that because Conga is, of course, recently acquired by Aptis. And it sounds like you're already down the path of integration or making these products work together. How has that looked from you in regards to how do you plan? How do you choose which features to make sure they can integrate first? You know, I'm curious the decision process in that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've acquired a bunch of companies. I've been acquired a bunch of times. This is the first time I've gone through and done that remote. So the whole COVID thing is <laughs> like, it's been, you know, we should write a book at the tail end of this on, on how to go through that. From an integration perspective, the two companies were fairly complementary. If you look at you know, a big chunk of, of what Conga focused on, on the document-centric side of things and kind of document generation and e-signature, et cetera, we really didn't have anything on, on the Aptis side of, of things. So you know, things like Composer from Conga are fantastic and some of the utilities like Grid and some of the, the workflow stuff like, like uh, Orchestrate. So from that perspective, it was just a question of you know, a quick connection. And we actually already had a lot of joint customers. So that one wasn't a, are we going to choose this one or that one? It's The answer was, you know, we're going to choose both and here's how we clip them together. And for things like um, contract management, where Conga had an offer and Aptis had an offer, what we understood when we went through and talked to customers was that the stuff that they really love, we went through and said, look, what do you, what do you love about this offer and what do you love about that offer? It was different things. And those things were already built as microservices. So again, think of it as like connecting Legos versus having to go through and rewrite stuff. So from an integration perspective, and we're nine months in at this point, the integration has been largely done within the first six months. And now it's a question of, you know, how, how can we do one and one makes three of new innovations that we do with the two products coming together? Yeah. I mean, that's what's fascinating to me about this because from an outsider's perspective, I'm not a VC, I'm not inside your company. I don't know as much about Aptis other than what I see can read on websites and read in articles. Aptis seems to serve like a specific type of customer more so in like, let's say retail sales, e-commerce sales. And then Conga, as I knew it, it had a much broader application. Every company that uses a CRM, which is just about every company that you know manages, let's say, more than a hundred customers, which is a lot. Uh, you know, used to in my eyes, you need a CRM and perhaps Conga. So I was always curious as how the two two products would come together. Unless Aptis itself sells to you know more markets than I actually think. What I'm reading from from what I can gather. So if you look across, you know, I keep using this term commercial operations transformation. Yep. Think of like a, a, a sell stuff bucket, a contract bucket, and a revenue bucket. Within each one of those buckets, uh, just from a market perspective and the amount of companies, it's huge because pretty much everyone on the planet yep. 
you know, has, has those three uh, components. And if you look at the Conga, just from the document-centric side of things, in a lot of cases, what we went through and found is you look at it and say, oh, it's just kind of general document generation, but it was fairly targeted. Most of Conga's business historically has come from generating documents for the sales component or the legal component or the revenue component. And you know, even with Conga um, entering the contract lifecycle management market was looking at the data from the documents they generated and said, hey guys, you realize the majority of the stuff that we're doing kind of document in quote is actually a legal agreement and a contract. There's actually some stuff that we can do here. So if you look at the amount of synergy um, between the two and kind of think of Conga as the on-ramp for that transformation, which is very document centric, there's a ton of synergy between the two, the two companies. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, one of the things that we always want to talk to with all of our guests is the, your background that led you to this point. Because one of the things that we see in your, so we do, you know, we obviously do a little homework on everybody and we can see that you're, you've been in product a lot, but you haven't always been in product. And you've been part of, uh, you know, like you were the general manager at Amdocs, which is another sponsor. There's another, we work with them at Mission. So we understand that your cloud solution and digital transformations, they do a lot of stuff, right? And so I'm curious what about your background? Uh, you've been in, like you've been in and out of product. You lean definitely towards, more towards product. But I'm curious, tell, because I want you to share what your background with our audience. Talk a little bit about your career and what led you to like more, I guess, product focus over it the course of your career? Yeah. So growing up in the Bay Area, you know, you're, you're literally surrounded by tons of information, uh, innovation and, and tons of, of technology. And I've always been fascinated with this idea of, you know, two guys in a garage can change the world as cheesy as that sounds. So got my start out on the hardware side of things. And we we're actually talking about, you know, Apple's new uh, headphones earlier on. Apple was, was where I got my start uh, on the marketing side of things and did a couple other stints in hardware companies. But the thing that, I, that really fascinated me along the lines of that two guys in the garage thing is if you can do it on the hardware side of things, you can do it even more on the software side of things. And kind of my gateway drug into that was uh, a CRM company on the sales side of things. And I was always fascinated with what technology could do to help sales, marketing, and service folks. So if you kind of look back through my, my uh, career, it's very much centric to that. Whether it, you know, even talking about commercial operations transformation, with, which Conga does now, a lot of the roots to that are in the CRM side of things. And even going through with Amdocs, you know, they might have called it something different like a uh, uh, business support system, but it's that same sort of connection between um, selling something and an agreement and getting money that comes in the door. And just seeing from an impact perspective, it's basically the monetization engine for a company. And so for me, it's really important to be able to kind of connect dots between what you're doing and does this have an impact for the customer? Is it a nice to have or a need to have? And that's one of the reasons I love this space for companies. It's absolutely a need to have. So yeah, this is, this is how I ended up here. And one of the things we always talk about with people that are inside a product, especially when you serve so many customers, because we did a couple fact digging on Kong. It looks like you have 800,000 users. Obviously, you're not talking to all of them. 
uh, if you are, you're a hero. Uh, Eighty five <laughs> countries. So one of, the, you know, one of the things we always talk about with people that are in product is there's always this constant, let's say suggestions. People are making different suggestions, feature requests, whatever you might want to call them. But like they can kind of pull you in multiple directions. Now, did you notice that at your wall for Conga or do you find that most of your customers are aligned in how things should be done? I know if there's like, if it's for, uh, let's say, legal or local legal policy, obviously that's very difficult to solve for. But um, in gen- like the general request, do you find that the audience you serve is quite aligned or is it still like many other cat, uh, software where all the requests are, let's say, all over the place? Yeah, I mean, the thing I go through and tell um, folks on my team is if you, you know, took this gig because you want to uh, win a popularity contest, it's, it's, you know, you probably chose the wrong gig because whatever you choose, <laughs> you're going to upset somebody at, at some point. What I've found is that if you really focus on the problem that the customer is trying to solve, they're fairly aligned with what those problems are. That may manifest in a different kind of request um, of, you know, I want this feature or that feature, but the problem piece is pretty consistent. And if you can focus on that and go back to the customer and say, hey, you know, what I'm delivering to solve it might not necessarily um, have been the thing that you asked for, but it's something that surprises and delights you and makes your life better. That makes it a lot easier. You know, we keep going back to this Apple example, and you know, the the famous one related to uh, the iPod. You know, no one asked for your entire music catalog in a deck of cards. They asked for a bunch of other stuff. But Steve Jobs being able to come back and say, "I understand the problem you're trying to solve. You know, you don't want to lug all this stuff around, and it's difficult to go through and do. And what about this?" And having people go, "Oh, yes, it's what I need," and didn't know what to ask for. So, you know, the the market's wonderful. It's going to tell you whether or not, you know, what you provided as a solution is going to hit or not. But that's what I've found. That's the great compass is, you know, lots of time with customers and lots of time on the problem. Do you have examples of that where, which, what is your iPod effectively, where everyone was saying a different thing, but then you recognized or you and your team recognized like, Hey, actually what our customers want is this product or service or feature. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, I think a great example of this is something that um, we call Max and it's an AI driven conversational assistant. Think of it kind of like Siri, well, not Siri because <laughs> it doesn't really work, but uh, Google <laughs> voice or Alexa for you know, commercial operations. So, so think of this where I'm a sales rep and, you know, I'm, I'm coming back from a meeting in San Francisco and I'm, I'm driving back down to San Jose and I need to get a non-disclosure agreement uh, out to Albert, you know, as part of us going through and, and doing business. And the problem that I have is I'm a rep. I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of attention span. I want to close this deal quickly. I need to get this to Albert. Uh, and I don't want to forget what that is. That's my problem. There's a bunch of different ways to solve this of, you know, we can build a bunch more features in the application and we can have this wizard and that wizard, et cetera. But one of the things that we looked at around that is, hey, in order to go through and solve that problem, wouldn't it be great if on the way back, you could just basically sit, I could say into the phone, uh, Max, send Albert uh, NDA. And it would come back and say, ah, do you mean Albert Chu? And when you say NDA, does it mean this? Yes, boom, done. 
goes into the system, pulls the contract template in agreement, has that in a digital form, something that can email out to you. And I have a record that that went through and that you're able to go through and, and see and open that. I think that's an example of something of using technology, not for the sake of technology, but like, ah, we can solve that problem. You know, time and attention span for rep uh, to go through and, and make their life better. I'm right now thinking about the times I was carrying a bag myself and how <laughs> beneficial this would have been. I want to ask you, so in your plan or how, how you bring products to actual like, uh, you know, general availability, did you pitch this idea? How did you pitch the, or how did you pitch this idea to your users or did you at all? Uh, because you're kind of hinting at it, right? No one was asking, hey, I need voice activated document submission. I want to be able to just say a name. I wanted to be able to look up all the records and figure out who I'm talking to uh, that across all my accounts I'm sitting on. Because we know that that's not how users think. They know, they're not so specific in like guiding these new breakthrough features where they can describe it. They're describing it like, you know, like you said in the beginning, it's really difficult to send documents on the road. Yeah, so so we spend a lot of time in advisory boards or you know one to one interactions uh, with customers, and one of the things that frequently came out of that over and over again, even though it didn't have a solution, was that problem, and articulated in a, in a number of different ways. So from that problem, then as we went through you know product planning. And some of the iterations of like, what are some different things that we can do to solve it? And, you know, I mentioned all the things we didn't do, but we definitely considered them. And actually, we started with those because it's kind of like the, you know, when you're a, a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah. Of like, yeah, yeah, we can build more of these forms and that forms. And we took back and said, no, no, think, think different on how we can go through and do this. And, you know, one of the team members came through and like, eh, what if we did like a virtual assistant? What, what if we could do this? And the feedback was, no, 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 no. You can't do that because no one's going to redline an agreement all the way through, you know, a 300 page contract. And then we went through and followed back around with customers and said, well, what actually are you going to do with this? And what we found was there's a series of very high frequency, very low complexity things that you can get away with Alexa on. So the send Albert an NDA, yeah, I'm doing that all the time because I have you know, 40 accounts that I'm responsible for and I'm meeting with them all the time. That stuff I'm doing and it's just going to send out quick. The, hey, I need to redline a 500-page agreement. First of all, as a rep, I'm not doing that. <laughs> legal is doing that. <laughs> and if legal is doing it, it yeah, they're going to spend hours and hours doing it. So again, it's the you know, going through and that ideation, iteration, and really asking the tough questions up front so you don't end up with a science project versus something that's really going to drive value for customers. So one of the classic battles of product and engineering, and before I get to you, do you have a background in engineering? I don't think you do, but I don't want to speak for you. No, I don't. Which I would say, I would say gives me an advantage on the product side of things because I can get away with asking really, really dumb questions from the customer <laughs> standpoint which tends to really cut through and give clarity to a uh, problem we're solving and who's going to care. So I'll use this analogy that I've used with other product managers. Uh, it was told to me, I can't take credit for it, but they said, if you ask an architect to build you a beautiful building, you'll get a beautiful building. If you ask a structural engineer to build you a, a sound building, you'll get a cube every time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so what we talked about is the, pl the play in the, 
the inner relationship with the working relationship between engineers and people in product. Cause you, you made a, you made a comment that, you know, a lot of times you're asking or potentially could be asking for things that are not necessarily able to be engineered or might not have the bandwidth or might not have the expertise in-house at the time to engineer something. How do those discussions go? How do you encourage engineering teams to maybe push the limits of what they think is possible to come to build products and services into fruition that maybe, you know, at first on the surface, it's like, oh, we can't do that. Like you said, like there's this attitude, like we can't do that until it's like, okay, it's now done and customers love it. Um, let me start with the way not to do that. <laughs> the way yeah. not to do that is think that within the product team, you have a monopoly on good ideas and to uh, throw direction over the wall and treat the R&D teams as something, you know, anything less than a complete partner. <laughs> you know, what I've found is we don't have a monopoly on good ideas. Some of the best ones come, you know, from the developers on, hey, you know, what if, what if we tried this? And in very much of a collaborative environment of like, it's safe, you know, there are no bad ideas, but let, let's just go through and iterate and, and, and what if? I've found much better results um, from that versus a more kind of siloed and structured and, and rigid environment. What are some of like the most creative ideas that have come forward to you that where you were like, where you yourself were like your light bulb went off and was like, oh my gosh, this is it. Like, I can't believe I didn't think it. Or even if you didn't think you could think of it, just where you heard it from someone else and you were just like, this is it. This customer's going to love it. You know, so one of, one of the things that... Um, we have within Conga is, is something called Spark Tank, which is kind of like a, a hackathon or ideathon. And, and for the last one, uh, which was actually last week that we were going through, there was folks from different groups that were going through and, and presenting. And one of them was around a, it's almost like a deployment profile that's diagnostics that instead of having to go through and kind of troubleshoot and see what's, wrong with something one way or the other. It's kind of like you plug your car in and it pops this thing up and goes, okay, Albert, it's, you know, change spark plugs, do this, do that. And particularly for some of the more complex deployments that can take, you know, not just minutes or hours, but days or weeks or something where, you know, using the car analogy, you need to pull the engine and, you know, customers not happy, et cetera. Mm -hmm going through and one of the tools that uh, the team came up with of like, Hey, you know, basically this is the plug the car. And I was like, Oh my God, why didn't we, <laughs> why didn't we do this before? We've been, you know, racking our brain on, on some of these deployments. Um, the max thing that I went through was another great idea. There's other ones on, you know, a lot of really cool stuff around leverage of data to provide contextual information. So you know, this concept of uh, one-click ordering for, you know, on Amazon when you go in there, you know, applying that in a legal sense of being able to do one-click contracts that are based on, you know, hey, we've looked at uh, the clauses that we're actually able to hit within different companies, um, within different industries over time that you've gone through and done. So instead of going through the, you know, however long process of going through an assembly, here's a great running head start that'll get you 80% of the way there. And here's the data that you can go through to do and, and leverage it. And I'd love to tell you all of this stuff came out from, you know, this very structured strategic process. You know, all those things came grassroots and 
coming off of a customer interaction. Ah, you know what? They were complaining about this, but what if we did that? That's, you know, would that solve it? And just sitting back and going, oh my God, how did we miss this? So curiously, do you have an internal decision-making tree that you utilize or rely on to help you make these decisions? Because like you said, let's just say people, agencies, marketing agencies, I've been part of software companies. They try to almost force ideation, like, oh, let's have a meeting on it. And, uh, you know, out of this meeting, we'll have all the great ideas. Right. And you just described what you just described is, hey, these these things come from anywhere and everywhere, usually with some exposure to a client problem. And you never know when it's going to happen. But what I want to ask you is, how do you evaluate the ideas? Because you as you're sitting at the top of the product organization, you have to be, you know, your part, people are leaning on you sometimes. I don't know if this happens often where I assume you might be like the, uh, the make or break decision. I don't know if that ever happens to you. But I didn't know if you had like your own internal methodology of what you think about to say like, okay, this is a feature worth doing. This is not a feature worth doing. Yeah. So, you know, I'd love to say it's this algorithm and, and because of the algorithm, then, you know, we don't need to meet and debate on stuff. It's all obvious. It uh, doesn't work that way, but there's, there's some filters that you can go through and apply. So the first piece is having a good kind of hypothesis and core strategic vision. Where are we going to compete? How are we going to compete? And why will we be successful? And that can kind of narrow down, hey, are we interested in hearing ideas around you know, commercial operations in a company? Because that's where we compete. Or, hey, somebody had a really good idea about you know, supply chain management, looking back and going, maybe so, but you know, let's, let's go back to this market space. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like on the, is this fundamental and core or not core? And then from there, it's triangulation. You know, you have your business goals that you're trying to achieve and, you know, balancing between the short term, what's going to get the deal versus versus the longer term. It's, you know, filtering and triangulation through that. And so some of this stuff you do. So, I, you know, I go back to, to what you were saying. I don't think you can force um, all those good ideas within a particular time frame, but I think it's good to have of structured collection points. So you have a view from an annual planning process where you'd look out three years, you have your hypothesis, and then you'd go through and look release to release. So it's a structured aggregation, unstructured ideation. That makes sense. And then there's also this rise of product data collection systems where there's a new, there's like a new industry almost. Uh, I would say when in 2016, 2015, I was just getting out of the software working in software companies, where there's a new rise of tools where you would implement them inside of your own software application, like basically inside Conga products, where you can measure and see what people are doing. Do you guys currently rely on any tools like that? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Albert, I've seen the same thing, this rise of like product operations. Yeah. (laughs) And very much tuned towards usage as one of the, the things that they look at outside of just kind of PL metrics uh, in general. So there's a number of different tools that we've used uh, around this, you know, stuff like Pendo and Amplitude and, and Salesforce Analytics. And, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the problem you're trying to solve there. You can go with some, you know, vanity metrics of say, oh, what's, you know, Mao and Dow, uh, monthly active and daily active users for a particular application, but what does that matter? You know, the, the, the tougher, you know, I get in a B2C uh, company and if you're doing it based on ad impressions, that's something that's a bit more relevant. But 
what we've really tried to do is dig deeper in saying, you know, outside of that, what's, what's really the stuff that matters? Like, you know, how many people have generated a, a document that's a quote in the last seven days within a particular uh, customer? Um, and whether it's the first month of deployment, we're trying to get them up and successful versus something that's, that's longer term. You know, how many people have done a quote related to a bundle or one that's, you know, uh, more than 200 line items? Um, because that's helping us understand, hey, are we helping this customer up the maturity curve? Are they leveraging a larger amount of the, the feature set to drive value? Or is it something that's, that's declining? So I think within just the general discipline of product overall, uh, those analytics and usage is, you know, going to be increasingly important. And if you don't have that as part of a pillar of what your team does, then your product's going to suffer and your company's going to suffer. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to get at is what was considered success for you. And the reason why I frame it this way is, let's say, for example, you said quotes the customer. Well, if I sell enterprise deals, I produce less of them. So that's not really good. It doesn't mean you're not doing a great job for me. I just don't, I just don't make as many, right? If I'm a small business and I'm selling a smaller product, like uh, if I was, let's say an AE at an ESP, I might have tons of customers. I might be sending out tons of quotes, tons of documents, tons of proposals. So you have you like total documents created can't be the success metric where it doesn't seem like it can be because it's just, that's just based on the size of the company. I'm curious for yourself, what, what is successful? Cause you're, cause you're right. Like, uh, Time in product doesn't mean it works great. Like I like to think of myself using Google. I don't really spend that much time in Google, right? When I Google something, I spend like fractions of a second and actually I leave. I go to another site. That doesn't mean it's not successful. It's in fact, it's very successful. So probably Google would measure like, well, how many searches do I create? Because I'm constantly, you know, do I constantly rely on Google? So I'm curious for yourself, what are, what are some numbers that you guys utilize to say this is successful or this is not going as, as we thought? Yeah, there, I, I think the key is to instrument in several areas so you can analyze in several areas. So it may end up being that with, within a particular component within the sales organization, you're interested to see how many customers at a particular time, not just how many quotes are generated, but how many quotes are generated in an online channel versus with a direct sales rep. Because for that customer, they're looking you know, a big part of the what they're trying to achieve for their business is to get stuff outside of direct or through partners and having that instrumented on the e-commerce side of things versus how many quotes went out the door um, that included a bundle versus a standard product or if they rolled out into another geo. So as we go through and develop new products and add enhancements to existing ones, we make sure and instrument all of that. So we can go through and see ah, what's really hitting and what's, what's not hitting there. And our metrics of what we really focus on, they've changed over time. I guess the, you know, the key takeaway that I'm saying here is there's not a single silver bullet like Mao or Dow. Yep. It's making sure you, know, you have instrumented and kind of feelers out there so you can understand as your understanding of the customer and the market evolves. No, I think, I mean, that's an honest answer. And that's, that's the way I see it as well. There's no, as the rise of data continues, it doesn't mean it actually has any answers. I'm not, that it doesn't have the answers. If it instruments properly, it'll have answers, but if not, then it's just numbers that don't tell your story. Yeah. And also in looking at it, 
The data is easy. It's the what is the actionable insight. And a lot of that is related to just looking at anomalies and saying, ah, you know, we see a delta, a spike or a dip. Why is that happening? You know, I can, I can remember one of the, and this is back, you know, you mentioned Amdocs before. This was one of the light bulbs that went on, you know, earlier on in my career and working with call center applications and spending time with the users. I can remember during usability reviews, sitting with this one guy and he kept like writing on, on post-it notes. And I was like, what? And he, and he had them all over the place. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, well, you know, something will come up within a call and, um, you know, I write it down on the post-it note and then I enter it in the application. I was like, well, a few things that, that came up at me. <laughs> Number one, the screen is way too complicated because he's got to get through seven or eight screens to go through and do what he needs to do. But also something super simple, like, you know, having a notes field, just like a floating notes field that he can go through and have that in digitally and then hit a button and then it gets it in. Um, it's something that's a quick hack. It's almost like the, um, I remember hearing this example of um, for the Israeli Air Force, they ended up putting like a rear view mirror in the cockpit instead of going through and instrumenting all these complicated systems to go through and do it. I'm like, okay, this is a hack to go through and you know buy some time for that problem. And I think there's a bunch of different examples of how you go through and do that saying, okay, what is the problem? Why is it occurring? Here's a hack that gets us some space until we can put something more uh, kind of elegant in there that's going to go through and solve the problem more comprehensively. I'm just trying to imagine people flying around $100 million jets with like these glue on uh, rear view mirrors. It's something so simple. <laughs> I, a, another example I'll give you is, um, you know, from the telecom industry for a long time, the operators were looking at opening up their networks and how do we go through and do that and monetize and we can go to a restaurant and we can have this mashup application that has location services and this and that. And Foursquare looked at that and said, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do all that. And what we're going to do is opt in. You can check in someplace and I don't have to worry about, you know, location or the rest of that stuff. I don't have to worry about, you know, customer information and privacy because they're going through and opting in. And it was a, a great, super simple solution to a, a customer problem. So one of the things that you've kind of hinted at quite a bit throughout this conversation is the fact that product is always a mix of engineering plus creative ideas plus customer input. It's never one thing or another. But you've also mentioned that you've been merging a company, building product, integrating product all in a time of remote and that you made a comment about how it's, it's, you could write a book on it about how difficult or challenging or let's just say unique, how unique the experience has been. Talk about so what are what have been some surprising challenges if there's any res- surprising benefits because this is one of those things where I believe everyone in a creative like building mindset has had a challenge with because like you said so many ideas come from just like just people talking right <laughs> and that's 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 not as common now that we all work from home yeah you know it's interesting especially during the front part of the integration we definitely got zoom fatigue yeah um, so you can imagine uh, so our our deal was announced and closed on the same day and you know then right into the integration discussion so you know 6 to 8 weeks dawn to dusk zoom meetings and so you know a big, a, a big part of that is not the meeting but it's the meeting outside of the meeting of you know and the bonding and, and the rest of it so that that was 
definitely uh, a challenge going through. What I did find, though, once we got through that burnout stage and you start to come up with different hacks of how you can connect and bond and how to create space and, and different things, the benefit there is that, you know, if you're, you know, start up 20 people, everyone is in literally the same room. And there's phenomenal productivity for that. But as you get bigger, it's going to get distributed. So a lot of the kind of productivity gains for companies, as long as they were in the same office, yeah, you kind of miss that. But what you pick up from a benefit perspective is having a lot tighter linkage and connectivity to remote areas. I mean, we have people all over the place, all over the States, all over Europe, all over India, uh, and I think it's helped us get things done remotely. The other benefit that I'd say around it is, you know, kind of blinders off and eyes open to a candidate pool of people that's much broader than driving distance to a corporate headquarters. So that was always the way with, you know, sales and, um, you know, professional services. But on the product and dev side of things, it was pretty, you know, kind of myopic towards, hey, you got to be in every day. and I think COVID has definitely showed us you don't, <laughs> you know, you can get stuff done remotely. <laughs> no, that's good. You, so I'm going to take it that you are looking forward to returning to the office or no? Um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I am and I'm not. So, you know, yeah. knowing a little bit about the Bay Area, I live probably about 40 miles away from, I'm in San Jose and Conga offices are in San Mateo. So it's about 40 miles away. So pre-COVID, the struggle was real on the commute side of things. I'd spend probably two or three hours a day in the car. Oh, wow. That's intense. So that I'm not looking forward to, but I do, I am looking you know, forward to get, getting back around other people as much as, you know, we, we came up with a bunch of great ways to do things remotely. You do miss that interaction. So yeah, that piece, that piece, I, I, I definitely miss. That's uh, for us. We're, Obviously, a mission. We're we're a podcast, a creative company. I agree with you. I think working remote is great. We've been a remote first company, but there is something about getting the team together and with something that we are looking forward to doing soon, getting our teams together. Because I do think there's that level of creativity that just it requires more fueling of other people. And kind of like what you said, Zoom fatigue. The biggest challenge with doing everything virtually is, I don't know, it's harder to share ideas. I I, I don't know if that's possible, but. I do feel like that's the way it is when everyone's in a web conference. I agree. I think there's some some really interesting technologies on the collaboration front. You know, things like uh, Miro for virtual whiteboarding and some of the additional stuff within Zoom, but it's just not the same as, you know, folks in a room whiteboarding and then what happens after the meeting. It's just it's not the same. So better in some senses, but you know, not, not as good in, in others. No, that's, I agree. And Eric, you know, now it's time for us to ask you some questions so people can get to learn about you outside of your world at Conga as SVP of product. We are going into the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Eric, this is where we ask you simple, quick questions about you and your, in your life and your world around you. We try to not keep it to work, it's a way for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. Sure. You ready? Fire away. All right. What is the first thing you look forward to most when travel restrictions are lifted? We were joking about it earlier, but like you can't even gather. <laughs> yeah. Gathering restrictions. 
I miss restaurants. I miss inside restaurants. That's one of the biggest things. And, and just going with, you know, groups of friends or groups of work colleagues, that's the thing I miss the most. What's your favorite place to eat in San Jose? So my favorite place to eat was a place called Nick's in Los Gatos, but they actually went out of business. So this is killing me even more. I need to find like my my uh, new go-to restaurant. So any, any uh, suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Unfortunately, I'm not from San Jose, but you know what? If you're listening out there in the audience, go tweet at Eric some, uh, some good recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like to do outside of work? Um, I love to mountain bike. Absolutely love to mountain bike. It's something that, you know, I was explaining to a friend of mine. It, it, I like giggle uncontrollably on, you know, the downhill uh, parts of that. So love to cook, love to mountain bike, love to hang out with my kids. There you go. For your mountain bike, what's your current setup? Oh God, how, how, how deep in the nerd hole do you want, <laughs> do you want me to go? You go, listen, I've always found, so I'm a avid surfer. If you ask me about my equipment, I will tell you about my equipment. So I want to hear about your mountain biking setup because mountain biking is one of those things where I am a casual biker. Like I have a felt, I actually don't have a mountain bike. I have a felt cyclocross bike because it gets me across the road and some dirt and some trails, but nothing too serious. I've wanted to get back in mountain biking just because I went down a trail recently and like it was a little bit much for my cyclocross bike but I just don't know too much about mountain biking. So you're actually going to help me by telling me your gear setup, unless your gear setup is like, you know, $20,000 or something. Yeah, so <laughs> so I I have a few here. I have a, a Santa Cruz tall boy, which is more of a, a trail bike. Uh, I have a specialized Epic, which is more of a cross country race bike. And then I have a specialized tarmac, which is a road bike for when the trails are uh, are too muddy. So Especially with COVID, I've been getting uh, tons of use out of uh, uh, out of all of them. Have you gone? Have you ever gone on a vacation specifically for mountain biking? I don't know that I'd say specifically for mountain biking, but have been mountain biking in places that I've gone on uh, vacation, whether it's you know Central America or you know one of the other ones in, in the states was in Aspen. Um, different places in, in Southern California. So it's kind of a, a byproduct versus I went to Moab for three weeks and, you know, went down the rabbit hole. What was your favorite place of the places you've mountain biked? Um, my favorite spot on the planet is something called uh, Demo or Soquel Demonstration Forest, which is in the mountain, the Santa Cruz mountains. And it's a place that uh, Specialized and Santa Cruz go test out uh, new bikes. Um, and they spent years building out a flow trail system there. So it's kind of like uh, Return of the Jedi Forest, if you can imagine that, and this kind of this okay. flowy gravity roller coaster that uh, goes through there. It's awesome. I love, love, love going there. It, now, is a flow trail the, the type of trail where you don't actually have to pedal, like you don't even have to pedal one time to make it through the whole thing? Through a section... Yes, that's what a flow trail is. To get to the flow trail, it's a lot of climb and kind of going through more technical stuff. But once you get on that, it's just, you know, you're on rails. There's berms. It's, you know, the drainage is great. It's just super sticky and a blast. All right. That's what I want to try then. That Yeah. <laughs> Although I might need some help getting my bike to the trail. Oh, man. Yeah, get, getting there is a bit rough, but it's it's so much fun. So Eric, I want to let you know that we have done now hundreds of IT interviews, but we've now been on a streak, I feel like, a streak of uh, people in tech, people in product, 
that have really interesting outdoorsmen, outdoorswoman hobbies. It's completely counter. It's the first like year. It was like no one, everyone, you know, it seemed like no one liked the outdoors, but now everyone <laughs> likes the outdoors. Cause they're stuck indoors. Yeah. And I, and I don't know if it's because of COVID or what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to say I would consider myself original gangster around this because even pre COVID I uh, definitely obsessed by mountain biking. Love it. <laughs> Well, Eric, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing all the things that you've input and put in and your thoughts to building a product. And of course, thanks for sharing your love of mountain biking. I always like talking to someone who loves the outdoors just as much as they love tech. Cool, cool, cool. Thanks, Albert. Thanks for having me here. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.